as we continue to worship together this morning. I ask that you would hear a scripture reading this morning from Ezekiel chapter 37. It'll be one that is familiar to most, if not all of you. This is Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood to their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it declares the Lord. This is God's word. Would you join with me in prayer? O Lord, our God, you know that naturally our hearts are as these dry bones, that we have no life in us and we can achieve no life on our own that we depend wholly and entirely upon you for the life that comes from you. Oh Lord, we ask that you would show us what it means that you would be our God and that we would be your people and that we would live accordingly. We thank you that you have shown yourself to us, you have revealed yourself to us, and that we might know you. That we can come to your word and see what you have done. 
and that your word might penetrate our hearts and that it might not return empty and void, that it would not leave us wanting more, but that your word would be effective in our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would apply the word that we can see and that we can read and that we can know that you have preserved for us and that we might know the truth. And Lord, that we can go from here and speak a gospel, that we can be the ones whose feet bear good news to the nations, that we can bear the good news of the gospel, that you are faithful and just to forgive those who confess to you, that you have chosen your people and that you will give them new life that even as you gave life to these bones, that you would give life to your people, that they might come to know you and come to follow you and live for you. And Lord, even as you have given us this new life, even as we have been born a second time, let us not use that life frivolously. Let us not waste that life. But let us recognize from whence that life came and to whom that life is dedicated. That life has come from you and that life is to you and for you and may we lay our bodies down before you as our good and living sacrifice to you. Knowing that your son Jesus came and was killed on the cross after living a perfect and sinless life that he was raised again on the third day and that he has been glorified to your right hand. That we have been bought with a price, that we are not our own, and that we should live as ones who have been bought with a price. Lord, we thank you for this incredible news. We thank you for these truths that we find over and over and over again throughout Scripture. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us the right not only to come before you just to to worship you and to bring you glory and bring you praise and to extol the incredible things that you have shown us to be. Lord, you have also allowed us to come before you that our requests might be made known that we might speak to you of the difficulties and the struggles of this world. And may we do even as your son did in the midst of his ministry here on this earth. May we take moments regularly, take time away from the myriad of things that would distract us and to worship you not just on Sundays, that this would not be the only day this week where we take dedicated time before you. That we would not only come before you in dedicated prayer this morning and wait until we do so again next week. But may we daily and regularly and even constantly be before your throne in prayer. We do lift up our brother and our sister, Bell and Sito, who are not feeling well, and we ask that you would be with 
Val in particular and heal her and bring her back to full health. We thank you for the blessing that they have been on our congregation. Lord, we again come before you in heartfelt gratitude at the answered prayers that our, our sister Lucille would once again be able to join with us in person. And Lord, we confess that we do not always trust you. We confess that we sometimes pray for these things not daring to hope that you would answer them and that you would do them. We ask that you would forgive us for our faithlessness. We ask that you would give us the faith that is required to pray expectantly, expecting you to answer prayers. And Lord, we know that every prayer has an answer, and sometimes it's not the answer that we are looking for. But Lord, may we pay attention and be ready to bring you incredible glory and praise when you answer prayers in such a way as you have by bringing Lucille back to us. Lord, we also praise you for the families in this church. Obviously, Lord, I am wrapped in these things, but we see so many little ones in this congregation. We have such great hopes for their future and what you might do in them and through them for your glory and for the good of your church. And Lord, we ask that you would cause them to live, that you would even as you have knit them together in their mother's wombs and caused them to be born in the first life, but this life that is stained with sin, we pray that you would give them the second life, that they might be reborn into your people, and that they might follow you with all they say and do with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that they might love their neighbor as themselves, and as they Show the love that comes from being your people. Show the love that comes only from you that you might be glorified in them. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning to see what it has to say to us in Ephesians chapter 2, we ask that you would make our hearts to be fertile ground that we would not be distracted, that we would not be pulled away, that we would not intentionally harden our hearts, but that we might be open and made ready for the truths of your word to be planted in our hearts and that you would cause these truths to grow and take root and to live in our hearts and life. Lord, we commit this service to you. We commit each one here to you and each one joining with us online. We ask that you be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning. These things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I am going to, for the first time ever, remember to dismiss the children for Children's Church. So if there are children here in ages three to kindergarten that are going to Children's Church that have not already taken off, 
feel free to go and make your way out to Children's Church. So, as I said earlier, this whole new life thing, both physical and spiritual, has obviously been kind of forefront on my mind lately. I look at this new little child, Jaylin, that we have brought home, look at the children growing in our care, both of our own and children not our own, and both Sherry and I pray that they would come to know the Lord. I thank God for this physical life that they've been given, and I pray that God would grant the regeneration that brings spiritual new life, a spiritual rebirth. I know many of us as parents would pray fervently that our children would come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But again, naturally, these children like each one of us, are born into a world of darkness. Each of us stained with original sin. From the very beginning of our new earthly lives, we resonate with the indictment of God against man in the days of Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Lord willing, this morning we're going to try to clarify and understand our passage today from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And this passage, much of what we're going to talk about today has fallen under the banner of what we can call um, the doctrine of total depravity. But let us read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And as we do so, remember that even as we read these three verses, these three verses seem pretty dark and pretty hopeless at first read. But we have verses 4 to 10 following, and we have a hope that is to come. But before we can get there, we need to understand what verses 1 to 3 says. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." is God's Word. Paul spent the first chapter of his letter to the church in Ephesus and kind of the surrounding area of Ephesus very focused on giving God glory and just oozing with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to the Father for his blessing and the adoption of his saints Thanksgiving for the redemption found in Christ and the inheritance that awaits Christ's people. Thanksgiving to and for Christ and the incredible works accomplished in and through him. 
in chapter 2, and particularly in our first three verses here this morning, Paul gets to an incredibly important element of thanksgiving. The portion that acknowledges not just what God's people have been saved unto, but also what they have been saved from. It can be easy for Christians to get caught up in the kind of hakuna matata, the past is in the past, eyes forward mentality, especially given the rose-colored version of Christianity that sometimes gets propagated by the media and certain ministries. But we need to know what we have been saved from. If you had never in your life experienced hunger, how grateful would you be when you see a banquet laid before you? I mean, good food is good food. You'd probably enjoy it. There would be an element of gratitude. But there would be something missing there. But if you had spent months starving, and all of a sudden this spread is laid out before you, it changes things. Yeah, if you had never been hungry, you would still be grateful for this food. It tastes good. But if you know what it is to live without food, to starve of food, then this banquet takes on a whole new meaning. And this morning, we are going to look at what it looked like when we were spiritually starving. And I want to kind of put a little caveat in your mind this morning that Paul, as he's speaking here, is using this past tense language. You were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which you once walked. And I'm going to continue using Paul's language, but I don't want us to be mistaken. The application of this past tense language to our former life of death and disobedience is entirely dependent that we have the new life that comes only from God. It is dependent entirely on the call of God, the regeneration, repentance, faith, and obedience. It depends on us being new creations in Christ Jesus. If we are not new creations in Christ Jesus, then we are still dead in our sins and our trespasses. Going forward, when I say we were dead, I am referring to the saints, justified and sanctified, who have legitimately confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. I cannot say for any one of us whether or not we have been saved. I can say that I know what I have believed, and I can say I know what appears to be the case in your lives. But I cannot say that you are saved, and I don't want any of us comforting ourselves saying we were dead or we once walked this way if indeed we still are dead and we still do walk this way. And if indeed you are still dead and you still do walk that way, that should bother you. And I hope it does bother you, 
And I hope the Spirit allows it to bother you enough that you might come to know him and hear the words that we speak this morning and come to faith in Christ. There is no in-between. We are either dead in our sins or we are made alive in Christ. There are no fence-sitters in heaven. Anyways, back to what I was saying before. We absolutely have to acknowledge our sinful and our wicked history of death. Without a right understanding of both the depths of our sin and the incredible cost to save us from our sin, we cannot give God the kind of glory that he is due. Removed from our sinful past, we have this risk of kind of becoming isolated in our Christian bubbles, gradually climbing onto those holier-than-thou pedestals, elevating ourselves as ones who have not been saved from the same mire and the same filth as the ones on whom we are tempted to cast judgment. We need to know where we have come from. So what is our history? What was our reality? Paul opens chapter 2 with an amazing and terrifying statement. Four small words, and you were dead. To most of us, death feels like just about as final of a thing as we can imagine. And particularly to the rest of our world, the world that hates God and does not know him, the parts of the world that say, says there is no God, for them, death is totally and utterly final in their minds. For them, there is only this life and nothing more. Once your biological processes stop, that is the end. Death is it. And yet in Scripture, and as Paul says this morning, death is just the beginning of the story. The Christian story, rightly told, begins in death. Hopefully you remember the beginning of Ephesians 1. Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as th sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All of that occurred long before we existed, before we were physically alive. And then even once we were first born onto this earth, we were born into death, into a doomed existence. Even though we appeared to be alive, that was just a facade as we were truly without any kind of real life. In our scripture reading, we read from Ezekiel chapter 37. And I keep coming back to that as long as I follow God and I hear him talk about this valley of bones that are completely dry and without life then brought to life by 
no work of their own. Nowhere did those dry bones, which in that context represent the people of Israel, those bones did not develop life of their own volition. They did not incite themselves to animation. They lay dead and they lay dry, unable to do anything but bleach and decay in the desert. But God said that he would open their graves and put his spirit in them that they may live. When Paul opens here in our passage this morning saying, and you were dead, that death is utter and total. There is no mostly dead. There is no spark of life. There is no maybe if you do enough CPR or something like that, you can bring, you can kind of fan into flame that kind of almost life that was there. The death that we were born into was completely devoid of any kind of life or hope. Our death was once as total and complete as those bones to which Ezekiel prophesied. But instead of a dry and dusty valley, our death was in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So I consider the death in which we once lived, the absolute death in which we once walked. I think those bones in Ezekiel's vision were in a better state than we were before we knew the gospel. At least Ezekiel's bones didn't have any way to claim life. They were dead and easily identifiable as such. I don't walk up and see a skeleton laying in the dust and go, well, maybe. That, that body is dead. But the world from which we have been called and we ourselves before we were granted new life loves to pretend at life. How many people believe that they are walking in a manner that is somehow acceptable? thinking of our own past and our own histories before we came to faith in Christ, before we saw the gospel for what it was, for the truth that it is, we thought we were doing all right. We might have had an inkling that there was something wrong, even if we had have grown up in Christian families. Before we came to faith in Christ, we thought we were doing okay. Otherwise, we would have been trying to find a way to fix it. But... We thought we were doing okay. And our world thinks it's doing okay. Better to be those dry bones who were well and aware that they were dead than to be enchanted by the wiles of our enemies such that we believe ourselves to live when we are truly dead. That this life that we thought that we were living was just a counterfeit life that was just an extended death. In the death in which we once lived, we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We simply followed the pattern. 
We did what comes naturally to us and what our world has led us to believe is normal and right. I see so many Christians getting so worked up as, how could the world do this, that, or the other thing? How could the world do anything but be wicked as it is? The pattern of the world from the very get-go has been away from God. Since the curse of sin was introduced into our world, it has been death, death, and more death. It is normal to the fallen man. Death is normal. We walked as the world still does, following the course of this world, a path which is ultimately laid out by following the one that our passage calls the prince of the power of the air. This one is identified specifically as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I'm not going to go too terribly much into that Prince of the Power of the Air title, but it is, as it seems, a reference to Satan. And what seems to throw some people for a loop here is that Satan is attributed this kind of, this title, this prince, some kind of leadership and rulership. What does it mean to be a prince of the power of the air? I'm not going to dive too far down that rabbit hole But Satan is being attributed leadership of the unseen powers and principalities which would resist God and lead his creations astray. Satan is the prince over this world in the sense that he leads those who do not know Christ. And if you're wondering where the limits on Satan's leadership Remember that Paul just declared in chapter 1, according to the working of God's great might, God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, and he put all things underneath his feet. So when we read Satan is the prince of the power of the air, it could very easily be something that we get anxious. We live in a world that is dark and broken. We look around and we see so much pain and suffering and despair and go, I live in a world ruled by this wicked king. No. You live in a world ruled by King Jesus. But there are those who do not know Jesus, who do not acknowledge him as their king, We live in a world where there is still one who leads what he thinks is a rebellion. Satan may be the prince of the wicked earthly powers, but he is prince of a kingdom already overthrown. But even though he has been defeated, he still works to misguide and lead people astray. He wants to take as many as he can with him into his inevitable defeat and his final punishment. And each one of us were once a part of that kingdom. We followed the enemy, the wicked one. The pattern of wickedness and sin that he has laid as the course in this evil world. And lest we think that we were just passive participants, born into sin but 
not so sinful ourselves, Paul has this to say of these that he calls the sons of disobedience. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It was both our nature and our actions that established us as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. If you had been born without any sin on your account in the form of an original sin, you were just as doomed because you loved sin. And there is even now a part of you that if you have placed your faith in Christ, there is even still a part of you that still loves sin and you must be killing that part of you day in and day out. Our world loves to pretend at life. And it has always been abundantly clear that one of the enemy's great tactics is simply to just twist something that God has given as good. Satan can't create anything good, but he can take what is good and corrupt it. God-given sexual desire becomes lust and fornication. The enjoyment of the incredible food and drink that God has given us in this world becomes gluttony and drunkenness. The amazing insight and creative abilities, some of the very things that mark us as carriers of God's own image, are now used not to glorify God, but to come up with different ways to kill one another and cheat one another and lie to one another and steal from one another. The very thing that should mark us as God's people is often used for wickedness. And the standard excuse for millennia has been one of balance. Well, we're not so bad. Overall, these good things that I do outweigh the wicked things that I do, and I might do some things wrong, but I do some good things to make up for it, and as long as I end up on the high side of the scale, I'm okay. But as sons of disobedience, as children of wrath, we once pursued wickedness wholeheartedly. And even though we would not have called it wickedness, even our good deeds were for selfish gain or for our own pride. I mean, look at the Pharisees. They were the best of the best. They were followers of the law to a T. They took great pride in how good they were, even as they murdered the very Messiah that they were waiting for. Paul gets this as a Pharisee. He says of himself in Philippians 3, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Even for all of Paul's blameless righteousness, what was it that was required that he might step out of the wicked kingdom of the world? In Galatians 1, he says that it was when God, who set him apart before he was born, who called him by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to him. Paul had spent his entire life being drilled in everything that his Old Testament scriptures could come up with. He had it memorized. He knew it all. He had it down he was righteousness to a T. And yet it was when God was pleased to reveal his son to him that Paul stepped from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. If there has ever been a question in your heart, and I know probably all of us have wrestled with this at one point or another, or if you've ever even been asked by someone, how could God send good people to hell? Or why can't God just overlook the sins of the world in favor of the good things that they have done? I need you to remember that everything, every part of man is stained and total, with total and utter wickedness. Yesterday or the day before, I think it was, I saw a great example of this. I saw a video online of a guy that I kind of follow. He does this work. He cleans rugs, and he shows these dirty rugs that he has brought into him and the before and after of how pretty they are afterwards. But he posted this video where he found this rug on the side of the road rolled up and rolled up with a whole bunch of garbage inside, very obviously lost in a run to the dump. And he found this rug and went, I wonder if I can clean that. And he proceeded to take it and clean it and squeegee and sponge the incredible amount of disgustingness out of this rug. And it turned into this beautiful rug, and he ended up having piles of people messaging him going, I want to buy that rug. It's gorgeous. But without someone to clean it, no matter how beautiful that rug might have been, it was destined for destruction, and it deserved to go in the trash. If I had a rug that required the amount of work that he did to get it clean, that rug would go to the trash, and I would buy a new rug. But this man... He pulled this rug out of the trash. The rug had no, it had no part in saving itself. It was just sitting there on the side of the road ready to be trashed. And yet this man pulled it out and cleaned it and set it to its intended use. Before Paul in verses 4 through 10, 
of chapter 2 dives into the incredible salvation that is lavished upon God's chosen saints, he first has to remind them of where they came from, who they were, and who they would still be if God had not pulled them out of the garbage heap, dragged them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. I said earlier that a lot of what we're talking about often gets lumped under this kind of doctrine of total depravity. For us to understand the absolutely incomprehensible greatness of God's salvation given to us, we have to realize that his salvation comes from him alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And this salvation is the free gift of God that no man may boast. Why can't we boast? Haven't we done good things? Weren't we worthy of some measure of leniency because we're overall kind of good people? What of our righteousness? We had no righteousness. Without Christ, nothing good that you have ever done counts for anything. Because even your own righteousness was for your own good and your own reward. We deserved no favor. We could earn no reprieve from the eternal consequences or the incredible wickedness that we knew. No, God had to save us for we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And we weren't just walking there by circumstances or compulsion, but willingly. We willingly walked the pattern of this world. We loved the fruits of our sin. Fruit that tasted so sweet and would only turn bitter when we're faced with the truths of God and according to his scriptures. We once loved the cheap and twisted versions of the good things that God supplies because they're easier. They're quicker to get. They require no work on our part. So, brothers and sisters, I pray that as this falls on your ears, that you might know that you were dead, that you once walked this way, that you once lived in the passions of our, your flesh, that you were by nature a child of wrath. I pray that by the grace of God, you can look back and see the past tense, see who you were, and praise God for what God has made you in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that you now see yourself without sin. You are not perfect. In James 3, 2, he says that we all stumble in many ways. John MacArthur once said, God's will may not be for the perfection of the true believer's life, but it is the direction of it. We are not without sin, even as saints chosen by God. But instead of being sinners condemned to die, we have become sinners saved by grace. Sinners that will grow in holiness according to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And if you hear this and you do not know yourself to be in this new kingdom, if you aren't hearing the past tense, if you're hearing the present tense, I am still walking in the course of this world, following the pattern laid down in this world and modeled by the evil one. Know that God is faithful and just to forgive those who would confess their sin and turn from it. 
that those who would call upon his name, confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that he will save them. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the depths of our depravity in order to rightly appreciate our salvation. But after the night comes the dawn. So as we close this morning, let's hear where this doom and gloom leads. Where are we taken when we are drawn from death to life? And where are we going, not next week, but Lord willing, the week after when we get into verses 4 to 10? We're going to read our passage again, but we're going to include even just verses 4 to 6. Just listen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Praise God for the but. If we have been called out by God, then we have been made alive together in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you have not left us to figure these things out on our own that we do not have to muddle through and find some manner of our own righteousness, for there is no righteousness to be found on our own account. But that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you have sent your son Jesus to be incarnate in this world, that he would model for us what a perfect and sinless life would look like, that he would live it on our behalf, and that he would die and take in himself the punishment, the wrath that we deserve, for we do not live the life that we ought to live. And that he was raised again on the third day and seated at your right hand. And that he rules and reigns even now today. We thank you that we have been made alive together with Christ. And Lord, even now where we are, where we stand today, we ask your forgiveness for the times where we look back to our old lives and we are tempted and enticed by the things that the world had to offer us and we return to it. And we pray that you would make those things sickening to us. We pray that we would look at the cheap and twisted versions of what the world would offer and we would see them for what they are, that we would see them as paths to death carrying with them no value. And may we look to what you have called us to. May we look into your word and see where you have 
put us, the path on which you have led us, and we would move from the path that follows the course of this world, that we would move from the path that follows the evil one, and that we would come to the path that follows life, come to the path that follows the example of your son, Jesus Christ. We know that the path that leads to destruction is broad and well-traveled. But give us the strength to follow the narrow path that leads to life, the path that follows and is only through your Son, Jesus Christ. But let us not forget where you have taken us from. Let us remember the darkness and the pain and the wickedness that we once used to love, not that we might return to it, but that we might learn from it and grow and say, I never want to go back there. For God has given me something far greater that you have given us because you are so rich in mercy that you would raise up your people to live with Christ. May we go from here as ones who desire to live with and for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your saving work in our hearts and our lives, and we pray for those who do not yet know you, who have not yet passed from the once living this way into the new life. We ask that you would draw them to yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we close with Paul, I say, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Amen. God bless you. Lord willing, we'll see any of you downstairs for a time of Sunday school, and we'll see you again next week. You're dismissed.